morning, everyone. Good to see you on a sunny morning. One of the writers of the New Testament said this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which creates all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What? Who? How? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so for centuries, the church has been working with this. The church has insisted that the God who made the world entered the world as one of us. The creator became a creature. The word became flesh and moved among us, showed us what it means to be human, died, lived, lived, died, and then lived again. And this claim has generated all kinds of debate because the implications for this are so massive. If the living God, if Jesus is in fact the living God, then this changes everything. And so this gives rise then to the New Testament. Paul's writing a couple decades after, uh, after Jesus. And then it gives rise to the biographies, the four biographies, the four gospels that we have. The last one being written, uh, being the Gospel of John, written 60 to 70 years after Jesus. And there's all kinds of debate But all of this, in one way or another, is trying to deal with the question, what to make of Jesus? And this gives rise to what what are known the ecumenical creeds, and we're looking at one of them. Uh, If you've been around, you know this. We're looking at one of them, the Apostles' Creed. And in the last weeks, we've been looking at what the nature of belief is. Do you remember any of this? This was about three, four weeks ago. So we'll just do a quick review. Uh, The difference of believing and believing into. Okay, and so we talked about how to believe is not to say I know or that I'm completely certain or that I'm turning a blind eye to reasonable verified facts in order to remain religious. It's not what believing is, but instead believing is I'm believing into or I'm actively trusting, I'm living in a relationship of commitment or even inquiry. So we've noted about how the Apostles' Creed is made up of three main sections and they're shaped like the Trinity. And the middle section, which is what we're going to get into, that's the longest one, and that's the section on Jesus. And there's, the, I think, the temptation to see the creed as maybe kind of cold doctrine. But I, I want to challenge us that what, what's most central in the creed is a name. What's most central is a name. Now just think of a name of someone you've come to know well. Someone you've been able to experience their person. Okay, got a name? You dialed it up. You've got a name. Someone you'd say, yeah, I've, I've got a pretty good understanding or a good experience of that person. So the name stands in place for all of that history. They are that name, but so much more. And I was thinking about that with the name of someone I've gotten to know well, Amy, that I talk about often. Beginning to be her husband, I was thinking about that this week, that one word Amy is so deceptive because behind the name is 22 years of experience. I met her in 1997, and she was just unbelievably happy. I, could, I thought no one smiles that much and found out 22 years, years later, yeah, I guess someone does. Um, so there's the one word, but then there's the whole backlog of our fights and our mending. Uh, There's a whole backlog of the ways we've learned how to say love to one another. 
There's a whole backlog of getting to witness to her life, her character, her gifts, and, and, the, and the backlog of the ongoing discovery. When I first met her, I didn't know she was funny. I, I had no idea. But I like to keep a catalog of things she said. I want to tell you one of her best of all time. <laughs> There's one time we're driving, and we see in a field, we see a fox you got to picture this, a fox running with a Ziploc bag in its mouth. So it's very rare to just see a, a fox in general, but to see a fox with a Ziploc bag in its mouth is equally rare. And so we were kind of stunned silent just watching this. And then Amy said, why should we assume that we're the only mammals who care about freshness? <laughs> That's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Why should we assume that we're the only mammals who care about freshness? That's such a great line. And so that name, Amy, or even the phrase to say, I am married to Amy, it's just so little, but there's so much behind it, and I trust so much ahead of it. There's so much that's already known and seen, and there's so much yet to be known and seen. And when the relationship's gone sideways, when, when, the, when there's the seasons when we're in marital counseling, when that creeping separateness has crept in, when usually what's happened is there's a famili familiarity that's led to an over-familiarity, which has led to contempt, which has led to an ignorance, to where we're in counseling saying, I forgot who you were, and I forgot who we were together. And then the way forward is then an act of remembrance and rediscovery. I just, I just know that to be true with this one person. And I think it's also true to the person the creed's talking about, the person of Jesus. So we come to the creed, second article. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. And if you've been around this stuff, is there not a sense of overfamiliarity? Is there not a sense of like, yeah, heard it, got it. Know it. Tiny phrase with so much behind it and potentially so much ahead of it. So 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it seems like a simple enough thing to know. He's saying this is, this is the one thing I've decided to know. But yet, a few verses later, he says this. He writes, We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory long before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that that simple knowledge, that deceptively simple knowledge, I want to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, is also the secret hidden wisdom of God. The knowledge of Jesus, Paul is claiming, is the depths. That's the deep end of the pool. This inexhaustible, this ungraduatable, I don't think that's a word, but th that's, that's what he's talking about. There are unsearchable riches in Christ. And he's saying this to a bunch of people who, who are one way or another saying, eh, 
the ocean, seeing it, know it. And he's like, get your scuba gear on, pal. Get it on. Don't just jet ski over the surface. Submerge, get in. Uh, Elsewhere, he says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Get your scuba gear on. Lucy says to Aslan, Aslan, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, answered Aslan. Not because you are, I am not, but every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. So the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, sorry, is this River's first morning in church? Welcome River Stapleton's in the house. Awesome. Good. It's 11 o'clock. Good to see you, Ashley. Um, I know you love all the attention, so you're welcome. Hebrews 1. Let's go to Hebrews 1. Uh, page 838 is there if you've got a chair Bible. So look at how the author of Hebrews is describing the deep end of the swimming pool. That is Christ. <clears throat> Let's go Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There's, there's a lot, a lot here, but a few things to note. The glory of God is like weight. Glory is weight. The glory of God is the weightiness of his being the sum of his attributes and character. If you add all of that up, the glory is all of that. And this passage tells us that Jesus is the radiance of that glory. He's the radiance of that weight and sum, which means that Jesus is the reflection, emanation, and display of God's glory. He is the showcase of the infinite awesomeness of God. This is a huge claim. Which is why Karl Barth said this, God has not revealed himself in any religion, including Christianity. He has spoken in his son, Jesus Christ. Or as one author put it, Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the word of God. And so then the, the first question is, well, what are the implications of that? If Jesus is what God has to say, then what have we heard? What are we hearing? I like how Nadia Boltz uh, Weber just starts spinning out some of the implications. She says this, If what we see in Jesus is God's own self-revealed, then what we are dealing with here is a God who is ridiculously indiscriminate about choosing friends. A God who would rather die than be in the sin accounting business anymore. A God who would not lift a finger to condemn those who crucified him, but went to the depths of hell rather than be apart even from his betrayers. A God unafraid to get his hands dirty for the ones he loves. This, this is the God who rises to new life with dirt still under his nails. Who is Jesus? Well, we're, 
how can you ever say enough? He's, he is what God has to say, and the implications are multifaceted. There are many, many, many. Who is Jesus? Well, we could, maybe we could expand the list to include a few more names, which would be a good exercise. Here, here are a number. There's one slide of names. You can do a scan. Just go back there. Go back one. I know many of you, that's, that's your common name in prayer, isn't it? Dear Horn of Salvation. Okay, next, next slide. Okay, next one. So many names, and it would be a good use of time maybe to, to get the scuba gear on and, and explore, trying to plummet into just one of those names. You could probably, you know, do that in a year and have a, a whole bunch left over to explore, I'm guessing. So I think, I think that would be a good exercise, but this morning what I want to do is this. For the next two weeks, we're looking at this first part of the creed. Next week, we're going to do some exegetical work in Matthew 16. This week, I want to look at story. I want to look at this as a narrative with you, okay? So we'll get to Matthew 16 next week. This week, I want to tell you a story. And I've abridged this and I've borrowed this. This is about 99% uh, out of Francis Spufford's book, uh, Unapologetic. Why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. Uh, it's a very playful book. If, you, if you're okay with some swearing, you'll like this book. Um, but it's a, 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 I think a, a skeptic who has become quite, he's a journalist, he's British, has become quite intrigued by the person of Jesus. And he's got two chapters on the person of Jesus. I was reading this in a coffee shop, having a hard time staying seated because there's just so much good stuff in here. Okay, so can you all settle in? Ready for a story? Okay. Get as comfortable as you can in plastic folding chairs, and let's, let's go. I'll, I'll just say this, too. This is an imperfect, incomplete rent story of Jesus. So it's not, it's not perfect by any means, but I think there's, there's a lot here. Okay, so <clears throat> Jesus and his friends come wandering into town on a Saturday, a Sabbath, when you're not supposed to work or travel, or do anything much, and they're chewing and laughing. They're picnicking in the street as they stroll along. And challenged, Jesus says, with his mouth full, that the rules are for people, not the people for the rules. And when crowds gather to check out this new source of entertainment or outrage, to see if he's conducting himself like a prophet or a teacher, he sits them down and he says things like, don't try to grip your life with tight, anxious hands and clench your fingers. Let go. If someone asks you for help, give them more than they've asked for. If someone hits out at you, let them be the place where violence ends. And he tells stories. It's his favorite thing to do. The stories are always about everyday stuff like sheep and vineyards and money and weddings and bosses and servants and parents and children. And he's talking about the kingdom all the time, all day, almost every hour. Yes, the kingdom is coming, he says. But he's not say what it is, only what it's like. It's like a tiny seed, like a pearl you'd give everything to possess, like wheat growing among weeds like the way the world looks to children, like a servant making good use of a master's money, like getting a day's pay for an hour's work. 
like a crooked magistrate who has fixed the case in your favor, like a wedding party, like a wedding party where all the original guests have been disinvited and replaced by random passers-by, like yeast in dough, like a treasure, like a harvest, like a door that opens whenever you knock it, or a door you have to bang on for hours in the middle of the night until a grumpy neighbor wakes up and lends you a loaf. The kingdom is whatever all these likenesses have in common. The kingdom, he seems to be saying, is something that can only be glimpsed in comparisons because the world contains no actual example of it. And yet the world glints and winks and shines everywhere with the possibility of it, which is not exactly what you'd call a manifesto. He doesn't denounce anything. He does not seem to be disgusted by anybody, anybody at all. But on the other hand, he has a lot to say about self-righteousness, which he compares not very tactfully to a grave that looks neat and well cared for up top, but is heaving with corruption down below. This is maggots, basically. And the point of this repulsive image is not just that the inside and the outside of a self-righteous person don't match, but that being sure you're righteous, standing on your dignity as a virtuous person, comes very close to being dead. And he annoys people when he talks like this. Because the implication is that everybody is guilty. And if everybody is guilty, nobody gets to congratulate themselves. And murderers and adulterers cannot be shunned. They are not outcasts. They do not belong in a category of unclean persons that the clean rest of us can hold at arm's length. Jesus insists that being unclean is not a temporary violation of the proper state of things. It is the normal human condition. So one day, he's teaching in a house, and the alleyway outside is blocked solid with onlookers. And his mother... His brothers and sisters turn up to retrieve him, and they can't force their way through the crowd. So they send in a message. Tell him his family have come to take him home. Tell him his mother's here and very upset. But he won't go. He won't even come out to talk to them. Instead, he weaves their message straight into what he's saying. Mother? Brother? Sister? What are those? He says. What good does it do if we only love those who love us back? God wants more than kin loving kin. He wants more than the natural bonds. He wants more than biology. He wants our love to do more than run around the tight circle of self-interest. God wants us to love wildly and without calculation. God wants us to love people we don't even like, people we hate, people who hate us. Another time. He's doing one of his all-time classic stories, a story about sheep. Say you have a hundred sheep, Jesus says, and you lose one. Wouldn't you drop everything? Wouldn't you leave the remaining 99 and go in search of the missing one, never resting until it's found? That's what God is like in search of us, Jesus says. Oh, you say, I see. Yeah, yeah, I would. Wait, wait, no, no, I wouldn't. No, not unless you lock up the other 99 sheep in, in, a, in a fold so you don't lose them too because sheep wander off and because you'd want to keep as many of them as possible. That would be a sheep maximizing strategy. That would be the point of being a shepherd. You do know, right, that 99 is a bigger number than one? 
But what matters to Jesus is that the lost is found. Lost people arouse his particular tenderness in all their varieties. People whose bodies or minds don't work properly. People who one way or another fall out of the purity rules, whether it's their own doing or not. People who live beyond the usual bounds of sympathy because they are ugly or frightening or boring or incomprehensible or dangerous. People who are not people like us, whoever we happen to be. These lost ones are the ones that stand out to him. And in all of his conversations, his conversations are always personal. One by one, as they get their moment with him, they are each vividly present to him. They matter. They matter in themselves. They are not a means to an end. He's not like a politician who wants to convert conversations into a block of votes. Or a war leader who wants charisma to win him a devoted army. It's not a good day for Jesus when he wins lots of new followers or a bad day for him when he doesn't. Jesus' sense of people is not additive. Each person in front of him is, for that moment, the one missing sheep. And he's never disgusted. He never says that anyone is too dirty to be touched, that anyone is too lost to be found, even in situations where there seem to be no grounds for human hope. He will not agree that hope is gone. Wreckage may be written into the logic of the world, but he will not agree that that's all there is. He says more can be mended than you know. The existing religion in Jesus' time says that the only way to be free of the past is by, is by sacrifice. But Jesus doesn't seem to think that any number of dead doves can remake our relationship with our own history or with God. Instead, to the horror of the pious people, he thinks that he can. Don't you know that only God can forgive sins? Someone is saying to him one day, when at that exact moment, a shaft of light breaks through, appears suddenly in the house. There's now a hole in the roof. And a bunch of entrepreneurially minded friends of a paraplegic have decided to drop uh, drop their friend right down in the middle of the conversation. They're jumping the queue to see Jesus by breaking and entering. And so in a tumble of thatch and dust and plaster particles, down comes a whole mattress on ropes. And yes, Jesus says, because taking away guilt would be even harder, wouldn't it? Than taking away this man's paralysis. But just to make the point, he says, get up, sir. Walk. And hey, Take the bed with you. Many times he asks people, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And often the answer is, heal me. Make me better. And Jesus does what he's asked to do. Impossibilities occur. Blind eyes see. Severed nerve cells reconnect. Legs straighten. Infections recede. Bleeding stops. Pain fades. Horrified minds quiet. Up you get, Jesus says. Go, get up, live, be in motion, be the mended version of yourself. But he can't mend all the world's sorrows this way. The healing of damaged bodies can only be a sign of what he's truly come to do. And now at last he turns toward the city. Jerusalem, it's where this story was always going. It's where a Messiah would have to declare himself. It's where this drama, whatever it is, must find its ending. 
The narrow stone streets are packed with visitors who've come in from the province for the biggest festival of the year. And the visitors see something like a parade with Jesus riding on a borrowed donkey. It's like a parade and a parody all at once. The friends are shouting around him, make way, make way. Who is this? It's another bloody prophet. It's that crazy preacher who says we don't need the law. No, it's, it's the rabbi from up north who heals people. What, the river dipping one? No, he's dead. It's another one. It's a king. Rubbish. Kings ride on horses, not donkeys. Is it a king? And this scene is really hard to read. Jesus is doing exactly what a Messiah would do, yet the details are off script. From the donkey to the way that only some of the friends seem to be shouting the slogans you'd expect, to, to the way that the man himself doesn't have his face set in the shining megawatt mask of charisma. It isn't clear what's happening, but something is. If this is a king, then it's one we have not seen before. Later that week, Jesus and his friends are celebrating the festival in a borrowed upstairs room. They eat the roast lamb and the yeastless bread with bitter herbs, and they share the cup of wine, and they tell the story of how the one God long ago brought his people out of captivity. And after supper, he picks up one of the flat loaves. This is my body, he says, and he snaps it in half. And he asks for the wine cup. This is my blood, he says. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's one of those likeness things again. But the friends don't think too hard about what he means because all they can think about is their anxiety and the finality of the way he's talking. Remember you? Where where are you going? We won't leave you. But they do. A few hours later, in the dark, on the open ground, the edge of the city where they're camped, Patrol of temple guards find them. And the friends looking to Jesus for guidance and getting none, they hesitate, they waver, and then they run, they run <clears throat> leaving him alone in custody. And for the rest of that night, he gets marched from place to place to a quick convocation of the temple's law court at the chief priest's house, and then onwards to an equally quick interview with the governor. Now, the oddity is that Jesus, who talked so eloquently, who shadow boxed with words so deftly on occasion, refuses to defend himself. All night long, he only echoes back the accusations. You threaten the temple. You say so, Jesus says. You're a blasphemer, a Sabbath breaker, an enemy of the law. You say so, Jesus says. You think you can forgive sins. You say so. You claim to be king. You say so. Daylight finds him in a procession again, but this time no one could mistake him for a king. He's rumbling along under the weight of his own instrument of execution, a great big wooden thing. He can hardly lift. With an escort of the empire's soldiers and the bystanders have come blinking out of their lodgings where they've spent the festival night, they don't see their hopes or even the possibility of hope. They see their disappointment. They see their frustration. They see everything in themselves that is too weak and too afraid to confront the empire. And though they hate these soldiers, they hate him more. I mean, just look at him. There's something disgusting about him, don't you think? Something that makes you squirm inside, something furtive. He's so pale 
and sickly looking with the dried blood around his mouth. Jesus is a joke. He's less a Messiah, more a patch of something nasty on the pavement. And as he struggles on, he recognizes every roaring, jeering face. He knows our names and he knows our histories. And since as well as being a weak and frightened man, he's also the love that makes the world to whom all times and places are equally present to him. He's turning his bruised face toward the whole human crowd, past, present, and future, and accepting everything we have to throw at him, everything we fear we deserve ourselves. And the doors of his heart are wedged open wide, and in rushes the whole world. The vile tide of cruelties and failures and secrets. Let me take that from you, he's saying. Give that to me. Let me carry it. Let me be to blame instead. I am big enough. I am wide enough. I am not what you were told. I am the father who longs for every last one of his children. I am the friend who will never leave you. I am the light behind the darkness. I am the shining your shame cannot extinguish. I am the ghost of love in the torture chamber. I am change and hope. I am the refining fire. I am the door where you thought there was only a wall. I am what comes after deserving. I am the earth that drinks up the bloodstain. I am gift without cost. I am, I am, I am. Before the foundations of the world, I am. The soldiers lead him out of the city gate, and with crunching blows from spear butts to motivate him, they drive him up the small cone of Skull Hill, where death sentences are carried out. They tie him onto the cross and plant him upright. It's the empire's punishment for rebellious slaves. Jesus hangs there. He twists against the ropes to snatch the precious air which whistles in his flattened nose. He cannot do anything deliberate now. He's all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything that cannot be escaped, and he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it and claims it as his own. This is mine now, he is saying. Each dark act, each dripping memory, but there is so much of it, so many injured children, so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger, so many bombs in public spaces, so many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with, so many jokes that go too far, so much ruining greed. The world he claims, claims him. And he's buried beneath the mountain's weight of it all. The pressure is squeezing out his feeling for light. There's nothing left. And then out it goes. Jesus' death belongs beside the millions of people too poor or too unimportant ever to have been recorded in history. Jesus dies like a migrant worker who suffocates in a freight container. Like a garbage picker caught in a slide. Like a child with an infected finger. Like a beggar the bus reverses over. Or, of course, like all the other slaves ever punished by crucifixion. So it's not an accident that Christianity became, began as a religion for slaves and women. Something Nietzsche meant as a criticism, but is in fact a compliment. It is not an accident that wherever it travels, it appeals first to untouchables. The last shall be first and the first shall be last, Jesus said. Early Sunday morning, one of the friends comes back with rags 
and a jug of water and a box of the grave spices that are supposed to cut down on the smell. She's braced for the task, but when she comes to the grave, she finds that the linens folded, and she finds the linens folded and that the body is gone. She takes no notice of the feet that appear on the edge of her vision. At first, she mistakes him for the gardener until he says her name. Don't be afraid, says Jesus. Far more can be mended than you know. She is weeping, overwhelmed, and overjoyed. Jesus helps her to stand, and the two of them standing in this graveyard garden are standing in a new newness that the rest of the world was about to wake up to. That's the story, or a, an imperfect, incomplete telling of the story. Are you still with me? Yeah, okay. The story that Jesus lived, died, and lived again is the story that in this, in Jesus' actions in the world were God's own actions in the world. That where Jesus was present, God was directly present too. That his death and return from death were an initiative by God taken to take from humanity the weight of guilt and shame and disgust and to show us a life larger than we've known. And that what happened to Jesus, God intends for the entire creation. All things new. That's a story. It's hard to, to get. You can't get around the circumference of it. You can't get to the bottom of it. But that's the story. And so at the end of one of Jesus' biographies in the Gospel of John, this is what the writer says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe. You may believe into Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's an important part there. The story is given so that you can believe that this really is what God's doing in the world, that we see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But that by believing into, by trusting, by living into this story, in the midst of all kinds of stories, this is where life is found. But that's the hard part, isn't it? Believing into this story, especially in a week like this week. Believing into this story in the midst of the swirling stories, the cacophony of stories of just this one week, stories out of Christ Church, New Zealand. You've likely heard by now, is it 49 or is it more than 49? 50? 50 people, the loss of 50 community members gathered for Friday prayers at two local mosques. Houses of worship attacked in the name of hate with guns and at least one car wired to explode. The seeds of hate sown in this act of violence were deliberate and calculated. And each shot fired into those mosques was meant to inject fear into the hearts of Muslims around the world. So as we're talking about Christchurch this week, and that's one of the world's pains in just this week in 2019, but as we're talking about the events we're also having a global conversation about media, about racism, about Islamophobia, about fundamentalism, about white supremacy. So there is then the need for more than thoughts and prayers 
and social media posts. The need is for a believing that is an embodied believing, a believing that is an embodied Jesus, a believing that is acting. A couple of things, just little prompts of how to act. Uh, preemptivelove.org. So uh, I think a great little summary, five things you can do today to support your Muslim neighbors. If you don't know about the work of preemptive love, I commend it to you. Five things uh, to do to support Muslim neighbors. Just go to their website and you'll see that right away. How else to act? Here's a picture. Maybe you saw this picture went viral. It's Andrew Greystone. And he's standing outside Medina Mosque in Manchester, and he's holding a sign, a whiteboard, which says, you are my friends. I will keep watch while you pray. And when he was interviewed about this picture that went viral, and it surprised even him, he says, there's two ways you can respond to an attack like this. He said, you can respond with fear, or you can respond with friendship. And he said, I never meant for anyone else to see the sign except for the people going into the mosque to pray. So he's, a little, he's just a little surprised by all the fame that's come with this. He's a Christian man, and he says this. He says, but I guess, he, just the look of his face, I'm kind of taking on his tone, but, um, <laughs> which isn't really fair, but <laughs> I, guess, I guess there are a lot of things that lots of people can do to just express friendship rather than fear with Muslim friends and neighbors and colleagues. So I just took one, one little action. I love that. Just took one little action. It's like, well, what do we do? What's one little action we can take? I don't know if you know that there's a mosque pretty close to where we're meeting this morning, just kind of in Gastown and Chinatown. And at the, um, at the info desk, there's a card. And on the front of the card, it says, we are with you. And inside, I've written just a little letter from our congregation to that mosque saying, uh, could you pass on to your community? We want you to know that we're glad you're in our city. You're wanted here. Uh, we denounce hate. You can read whatever is in the letter. It's short. But if you'd like to, you could sign your, sign your name on that. And we'll collect those signatures. And then I'll bring it over later this week uh, to that mosque. Well, small acts of kindness. Small acts of kindness. So it's been a hard week in Christchurch. It's been a hard week on Jackson Street. You may know we're, we're on Alexander and Jackson. And this, this past Friday, Dakota Wildman uh, died on Jackson Street, three blocks from here. He's 19 years old. It was an argument that led to violence that led to the end of his life. And so that night I came home and Jackson and the corner of Kiefer was taped off including all the sidewalks, and you couldn't get through. And I know this because that's the street where we live. And Dakota's blood was everywhere. It was on the sidewalk, in the dirt, on the adjacent cars. And on the Saturday morning, fire and police were still there, and firemen were hosing down the sidewalk, and the police asked them to hose a little longer until the blood was gone. The fire and police eventually left, and the sidewalks were gleaming, but Dakota's blood remained. And out on the sidewalk, life continued on. It seemed like it continued on way too fast. It's a Sunday morning. I see a man walking a dog 
in a green, a pug, just to say. Man walking a pug in a green jacket. I see our Asian seniors getting their morning exercises and stretches in. I see all of us moving up and down Jackson. A neighbor is hosting a birthday party, a five-year-old birthday party, and so they're doing the right things, which is to celebrate five years of life. But because that neighbor's house is right by uh, where Dakota's incident happened, there's minivans of, of children coming up to the curb, and those children are running across the sidewalk. This is the sidewalk where Dakota's blood is. Later in the day, I walked down Jackson. I want to tell you, Dakota's blood was still there. And the light kept catching it, kept glinting it in new angles, clinging in the crevices. Why am I telling you this? Just in case we needed a reminder that violence isn't just something on the other side of the world, that violence lives in this community and in me. I'm telling you this because I want to say his name. And I'm telling you this because I want to invite us to a small act. There's a GoFundMe page for Dakota. If you just Google his Dakota Wildman Memorial Fund, you'll find it. Uh, but money here can help. His sister, who has custody of his one-year-old son, this can help with funeral expenses. This is a small act of kindness. So to confess the creed on a week like this, we've named two things, you've got your own things. To confess the creed is to confess a contested story. To recite the creed is to be both rebellious and faithful at the same time. To recite the creed to say, I believe in Jesus, is a rebellion against the cultural narratives of us versus them. It is a rebellion against my own indifference and inaction. It is to rebel against white supremacy. It is to rebel against allegiances to consumerism and nationalism and militarism. It is to rebel against fundamentalism of every kind, including my own. It is to rebel against more blood being shed. And it is to be faithful, primarily, first and foremost, to a person is to say, I don't know much, but I am believing into, I am trusting that Jesus lived, died, and lived again. And I'm trusting that the whole world is somehow tangled up in this. That his life was given and raised up for the life of the world. What does it mean to say, I believe in Jesus? So much more than going to heaven. So much more. It is to say, I believe that the best way to be human is to be human in the way that God was human in Jesus. Say, I believe in Jesus is to say, I believe that the action is on the margins because that's where Jesus keeps moving. To those considered lost, least, last, little, and left behind. To say, I believe in Jesus is to say, I have no idea if small acts of kindness even do anything. I have no idea if a song or a poem or a sermon or a hug or a march or a church can make a sound loud enough to be heard over roaring violence. I only know what love does and what love must do. And I know what love is because I've seen it in Jesus. I believe that the cross of Christ is the turning point of history. It's where God in Christ reveals what love looks like. 
It's a love that co-suffers, a love that absorbs sin and hate and recycles it into forgiveness and reconciliation. I believe in Jesus is to say today and every day, I believe in love over fear. I believe in mercy over judgment. I believe in forgiveness over violence. Or as Mary Oliver says, I believe in kindness, also in mischief, also in singing, especially when singing is not necessarily prescribed. I believe in Jesus is to say, I believe he is the source of these things. Or as the author of Hebrews says, he is the author and the finisher. He is the author of reconciliation and peace and joy and satisfaction and respect. He is the source, originator, creator of inclusion, laughter, and love. And he's also the finisher of those things. His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. And we live in kingdoms of abuse, violence, and despair. And so we cry out, your kingdom come. Your kingdom with all of the righteousness, peace, and joy. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom where the image of God is upheld in all people. Your kingdom, which is like a party where joy is on tap. Your kingdom come on earth, in Christ Church, on Jackson Street, in the downtown east side, in my broken relationships. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is the author He's the finisher. He will complete what he started. I believe in Jesus Christ. And some weeks you say it through your teeth. There's a whole lot. That little phrase isn't there. There's a whole lot behind it. And we're hoping ahead of it. We're invited to believe into it, to resist over familiarity, to get on the scuba gear. We're invited to embody a love that stands up and stands in between. Which is why we have the table. Where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Keep remembering and keep rediscovering. You're never going to graduate the table. Do this in remembrance of me. Take my body and my blood. Metabolize it so that you become it. So that your believing leads to becoming like me. So we, may we all learn what it means to believe in Jesus, to believe like him, and may our believing lead to becoming. Let's take a moment just to sit named a number of things this morning, things named and unnamed. So let's take a moment to silence and then we'll come to the table and we'll rehearse the table uh, liturgy together.